one of the things that I would say to them is this has to be beautiful, not ostentatious, luxurious, over the top, but it must be beautiful because the faith is beautiful. Worship is beautiful. Ritual is beautiful. And so the building, however you come up with this, must exude beauty that is reflective of the beauty of the liturgy, the beauty of our faith. You're searching for the meaning of life. On what certainties should we build our lives and the life of the community to which we belong? I have come to know among you nothing but Christ and Him crucified. What matters is that I believe it, or rather know, not that I believe it, but that I believe it. We have hope. Someone who's alive today could be a saint tomorrow. That makes sense. That's why Jesus came on earth. In order to set them free with the truth of the gospel. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to an episode of Upfront with the Archbishop. My name is Jenny Conley, your host. The goal of Upfront is to bridge the gap between the hierarchy and the faithful by discussing the beauty, truth, and challenges of our Catholic faith. And as per usual, I am joined today by His Grace, Archbishop Smith. Hello there, Jenny. Hey, one thing I wanted to ask you about your grace was you recently established officially a Korean Catholic church within our archdiocese and you visited the parish um, on a pastoral visit. And I'm, I'm curious about that. How did that go? Oh, that was, that was wonderful. Wonderful. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. The, the, what the Korean Catholic community has been in the archdiocese for, for many, many years, but they've been growing, they're dynamic. Um, And it was brought to my attention that even though the community has been there for a while, we'd, had not, for whatever reason, taken the step of formally establishing it in canonical terms as a parish. And so I okay. said, let's do this. So I did it, did up at the decree, went to the parish and celebrated the Eucharist with them, met with the people, which was which was wonderful. But like on any other parish visit, I said, is there anybody else maybe that can't get the Mass you'd like me to visit? In the Korean community. Uh-huh. And they uh, took me to the home. This was such a moving moment for me. They took me to the home of a 93-year-old Korean woman. Wow. And because of her, she was, she's living with, with family, and because of mobility issues, just wasn't able to get out to church and hadn't been for a while. But uh, central to the life of the whole community, everybody knows her, loves her, and so on. And would she like to meet with the archbishop? So sure. And so off I went. And um, I was just so taken with this woman's faith they were telling me afterwards that they call her a walking prayer. Oh. She spends her day praying. This is what she does. And uh, meeting with her, talking with her, celebrating a sacrament with her, it was clear that this was a woman, a woman very close to God who had been touched and transformed by God and just absorbs, absorbs the grace, absorbs the word. And so I found myself humbled to begin with, to be in the presence of what, was clearly to me a saintly woman, wow. uh, but a woman who who really wanted to have that connection with her parish and to be able to do it on a day when she, who had been um, one of the pioneers, was able to be informed that now it's a, it, it has reached the status of being a formal parish. Share that good news with her, mm-hmm. to pray with her. That was that was a beautiful beautiful moment. A walking prayer. A walking prayer. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What's the name of the parish again? Remind me. Saint Yung Hasang. Wow. One of the uh, okay. Korean martyrs. 
And and the pastor there, he recently just immigrated from Korea, did he not? He did. So there's a di- there's a diocese, an archdiocese uh, of Gwangju in okay. the southern part of southern Korea that for many, many years has been supplying a priest. It comes for five years, goes home, another one comes. Oh, okay. And a few years ago, um, I said, boy, this has been going on a long time. It's time. We said, thank you. So I went over to, to Korea, visited at the archdiocese there with the archbishop and with his officials and, and people in parishes and so on, just to say thank you. And the priest at the time of my visit, who was my interpreter, Brother James Cho, is now the new pastor here. And so he was there to receive me in the parish when I went over for this uh, establishment of it canonically as a parish. And so it was nice to see that, have that connection again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I met him in the hallways of the office, and he he was a delightful person to encounter. For sure. And he's a canon lawyer. Yes, I had forgotten that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, a brilliant man. So, well, that's wonderful. I'm really glad to hear that. Um, Today, we don't really, I don't really have a segue into this topic, but it's an interesting one. Um, We're talking about uh, church architecture and how that affects our worship. What's the difference between I like a parish and maybe an objective standard of what makes a uh, a building appropriate for Catholic worship, right? As opposed to any building that we build for different purposes. Um, do you have outside, besides the Basilica, because obviously that is a incredible um, piece of architecture, you could say, in the archdiocese. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a particular parish in our Catholic community that you appreciate the architecture of? Oh, sure. There's a few, but the one that, that jumps to mind has to be Saint-Joachim. That's the oh. one of the Francophone communities that we have here. That was the first church to be built in Edmonton. Okay. And so it's, uh, it's obviously of great historic significance. But you walk in, and, and this, this is what is so, I think, critically important for church architecture. You walk in, and you know you are in sacred space. You know you are in something that is quite different and more beautiful and, and, and above and beyond the normal secular environment in which uh, we are surrounded in, in every other context of our lives, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a beauty. And uh, if you've been to churches in Europe, it, it brings that all back, really, on a smaller scale. But you just have this sense of something uh, truly beautiful and truly sacred. Uh, in English, what saint is it named after? Saint Joachim, so the, oh, the Joachim. father oh, of uh, of the Blessed Mother, Saint Joachim and Saint Anne, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's downtown, just about a couple minutes from the Basilica, Saint Joseph's yep. Basilica. Yep. Yeah, it is a beautiful. It's kind of is it Gothic? Do you know the term? <laughs> I think yeah. it's like in Gothic in its style or neo Gothic, which is really See, immediately not, makes you think I'm of not, Europe. Yeah, let's not go there because I'm not <laughs> sure of architectural terms too well. When Gothic, yeah. I think of the high vaulted ceilings of the great European yeah. cathedrals and and kind of black. I associate Gothic architecture when I've been to Europe with really dark tones. Dark, yeah, yeah for very sure. dark, yeah. yeah. Um. How is the involvement of of the archbishop when a new church is commissioned to be built? If built, um, if if uh, if a parish is being built from scratch in the archdiocese, right. in terms of the blueprints and the details of how the parish is going to look and how the building is structured, are you involved in that, oh, or is it sure. external? Sure, sure. Now, usually we would have um, uh, the director of divine worship for the archdiocese 
involved on my behalf. Okay. So working with the parishioners as they go through the process. Um, but but no, a, a church would not be built in any diocese where the bishop, the local bishop, not to sign off on it. Okay. And I I don't even remember where I initially heard this, but it was explained to me at one point that in terms of having principles for what makes a building appropriate for the Catholic mass is that the altar is elevated and not below the people. But I know that a lot of modern churches, not just in our archdiocese, but beyond have kind of this modern churches have an amphitheater style where the, you actually look down and see the altar and then the people kind of go up because it's great for acoustics, right? It's great for concerts. And so there's this justification that you can you can hear well and it, it works well for the people being able to see clearly without um, your line of vision being impeded. But is that is that a principle that's true? Ideally, we're, we want the altar to be uplifted because, of course, it's the holy sacrifice. No, of the, the mass. key. Well, the key is visibility. So depending, is. So, oh, okay. so depending upon how the rest of the church is structured, okay, what needs to happen in order for the altar to be visible. So I think oh. traditionally, in order for it to be visible, it would have to be high, right? Higher than it. But oh. if you have an amphitheater stru- uh, structure in a church, then then, then you can, the other lines of sight would make the altar visible. And the visibility arises, of course, from its centrality in the act of worship. Okay. The Catholic worship is participation in the very worship of Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. That act of worship that took place on the cross. When you look at the cross, what you see is right worship, mm-hmm. self gift in obedience and in thanksgiving to the heavenly father. Mm -hmm. And the Lord makes himself present in the mass precisely so that we can participate in that self-sacrifice. When we talk about the real presence, what we're talking about is the rendering present of present of the self-sacrifice that occurred once for all on the cross, Calvary. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it was once, it was a moment in history, but the Lord, through his resurrection, transcends time and can make the Paschal mystery present thereby um, in all the sacramental celebrations of the church so that it does truly become for all. Mm-hmm. And we can participate and share in the grace of, the, of that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So visibility of the altar, that's, you'd say that's a principle of a, sure. of a, of a church, a Catholic Prince, church? Uh, visibility and stability. Okay. We went through this period back in the 70s, 80s, when somehow people felt we could kind of move the altar around and, oh, and create okay. space for other things we may want to do in the church, this kind of thing. And, okay. But no, no, Christ is our rock. Christ is immovable. God's love, God is immovable. So this all gets reflected in the immovability and the stability of the altar, which needs to be of such solid material that what you see is something stable, not to be moved, because Christ's love is stable and immovable. Yeah. And I do think more and more in our in our society today, where everything feels like you're standing on quicksand, right? And where's the security and all the anxiety that's being born because of that? The more we can step into a church and encounter there the stability of the altar, the predictability of ritual. What, what you have in the act of worship then is, is the source of stability for my life and for our life. And we need to be very, very careful in our, in our 
in our architecture and in the way we celebrate the liturgy, that this is what is communicated for the sake of the hope of the people. Mm-hmm. Christ's immovable presence, his immovable love for all of us. Hi, everyone. Matthew Bodnarik here, producer for Upfront with the Archbishop. I wanted to invite you to sign up for our email list, Upfront Updates, which is a neat little tool where you can stay up to date with the podcast, as well as uh, new announcements, new topics that we're discussing, as well as participate in polls when we ask our audience what you want to hear the Archbishop talk about next. So you can check the show notes for that. Stay up to date with Upfront. Now back to the show. So if you were to sit down with an architect that was the lead on building a new church within the archdiocese, what would you prioritize in terms of speaking to that person and making sure that they um, understand certain principles as they're creating this physical piece of art and yeah. space of worship? Yeah, well, I, can, I can share with you a little bit of the kind of conversation I had with the architect when we were building the seminary here. Ah, which and that has the chapel as its central focus, obviously. So I'm not an artist, right? And I'm not an architect. So I don't know all the mechanics of that. I don't know how they're trained in, in all these different things. But I said, there's some things you need to translate into architecture. Um, and, and one of the things that I would say to them is this has to be beautiful. Not ostentatious, luxurious, over the top, but it must be beautiful. Because... The faith is beautiful, and worship is beautiful, ritual is beautiful. And so the building, however you come up with this, must exude beauty that is reflective of the beauty of the liturgy, the beauty of our faith. Uh, The building must express transcendence. Uh, When someone steps into the sacred space, they must know that this is something radically different from what's around them. Um, When we celebrate the Mass, when we celebrate the Mass especially, but all liturgy, heaven touches earth. It lifts us out of ourselves towards God. In fact, the heavenly liturgy comes and draws us into itself through the celebration of the Mass. So we must have a sense of transcendence in all of this. And also the building must reflect the fact that we are a people who are rooted in tradition. The church was not invented yesterday. There are 2,000 years of tradition which has shaped our identity as a Catholic people and which has always found the centerpiece of the formation of that identity in the liturgy, especially in the Eucharist. So beauty, transcendence, Beauty? Tradition. Yeah, tradition. Yeah. Beauty, transcendence, and tradition. Mm-hmm. Bring these together for me. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I, I'd have to say, I think in the case of the seminary, the, the architect did that and did it beautifully. Mm-hmm. I don't know how she did that. <laughs> they have their own skill. Mm-hmm. But I think we all have a sense of when all of those things are coming together. So you mentioned our cathedral, mm-hmm. St. Joseph Basilica. You step in there, you just lift it out of yourself before the liturgy is ever celebrated, right? You know you're, you're, you know you're part of something far bigger than yourself, far, that, that reaches back into time, but yes, continues to speak to the present. Um, the, the, the lines, the, the height, the stained glass, the mosaic, all of these things that are part and parcel of Catholic art over the years come together beautifully 
in the service of worship in that building. Mm-hmm. And they need to come together in all on all buildings. We we also know very, very quickly the opposite mm-hmm. when we step in and we look as if we're just look, we're just in a multi-purpose hall or something. This could be any other gathering space, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then we've missed the mark. Mm-hmm. Then we've missed the mark if that's the case. I have a question here. You just mentioned we all kind of get an idea and, and know when we walk into a, uh, a sacred space or a church and we're getting the opposite kind of feeling of transcendence and uh, our lack of tradition, our lack of lack of beauty in that regard. What would you recommend to a Catholic who maybe has sort of started exploring uh, beautiful churches like the Basilica, maybe went for a backpacking trip to Europe, went to World Youth Day, and ex- got exposed to like the highest form of beauty that we have to show off in our in our faith, and then they come back to their home parish and they don't see that and they are becoming very distracted by it, especially at mass. What would you recommend to someone like that? Well, don't allow the distraction to take you too, too far away from the central act of what's happening. You know, the Lord works through it all. And the central act when we gather from mass is the Lord's presence, right? And his, his presence is what is the height of beauty, right? So, Keep that in mind, that still the Lord is, is present, he's on that altar, and he's drawing us into his own self-gift to the Father. And the Lord doesn't allow, or will not allow, um, our own inadequacies, our own insufficiencies to stand in the way of what he wants to accomplish there in that moment. So keep that in mind. Um, Two, though, I, I wouldn't be afraid to raise the question with the pastoral council or with the parish priest, have uh, charitable discussions with other parishioners and say, you know what, I wonder if there's anything we can do really to enhance the beauty of our space. Mm-hmm. I think those are good conversations to have. And I know, I know if you put your mind to it, it's possible. We had one, I'm not going to go into specifics, but there was one church here that really wasn't a success story in terms of the space and the beauty of the space. Mm. Um, And it was taken over by another group. And with some very, very small changes, alterations, I couldn't believe the transformation. Mm. Actually, I've seen this in a couple instances here now that I think about it. Without a whole lot of work, all of a sudden, what had been, frankly, very banal, became a beautifully transcendent worship space. Mm. So it's possible and not at great expense. Yeah. So where there is dissatisfaction, I'd say uh, keep, keep in mind the centrality of the sacrament and grace that's at work in the sacrament, of course. But then um, have conversations to say, might we want to take a look at this and bring in an, an architect, liturgical architect, and just see what might be possible. Because to somebody like my mind, I can't envision those things. Mm. Um, but there are people who can. It can lead us through the process and invite them in and have the conversation. Yeah. And actually, like you said, we were talking about this off the mic, how it would be so great to have a discussion with a liturgical architect about how, how do you practically define those terms of transcendence and beauty and tradition in, in the practical work of building a church? Because in philosophy, we can have them in theory, but how do you, put that theory into wood and concrete and yep. stained glass. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting conversation. And, and it, uh, it takes a real skill set. It takes a real gift, real take, takes a real person of faith 
Mm-hmm. But they're out there. And those yeah. would be great conversations to have. Yeah. One aspect, too, of the parishes that I've noticed that you've been uh, involved with building one uh, since you've been Archbishop here, Your Grace, is that every new parish seems to have a extremely tall ceiling, which reminds and harkens to those kind of Gothic cathedrals, European mm-hmm. cathedrals mm-hmm. that are so gorgeous. Was that intentional on your part um, or the architect's part? Or, 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 and what, what's behind that? Well, certainly not intentional on my part. I have to say that in all honesty. Uh, it's just the way that it all unfolded according to the architect's design. But it is something I'm happy with because, again, uh, the height of the ceiling kind of aids in lifting you out of yourself. Um, that gives you that transcendent dimension that something is happening here uh, far beyond us and yet within us at the same time. I remember there was a couple of us, oh, actually Matthew and I, um, we were traveling, um, visiting a parish in a smaller community Mm -hmm. outside of Edmonton. And the parish priest was talking about how he had plans to um, paint the ceiling of the church, this deep blue color, and then have the gold stars, which I know is a traditional um, form of art in Catholic architecture, but it was, it was great to hear a pastor just talking in a small way or maybe a not so small way about one way that he could bring another level of beauty and transcendence to an older building that, you know, has its quirks and it's imperfect. So it it was great in a practical sense to hear someone say, okay, here's one small way that we can take this to the, to another level. Right. And sometimes those small steps can have huge impact. Yeah. 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 It can have a huge impact on how people are worship, worshiping or meditating during the mass. Well, you know, and you've made reference uh, earlier today to parish visits, you know, that I, that I do and people love their church. They want to love their church. They yeah. want their church to be beautiful. Yeah. Um, so we need to be very, very attentive, obviously to the history of a particular building, to the history of the contributions that people have made over time. Um, uh, especially their their parents, their grandparents. They might have given this statue or made this donation or whatever. So all of that has to be honored. All of that has to respect be respected. So this can't be a question of, you know, a new pastor coming in and saying, I think we need to change this. Let's go ahead and do it. No, no. Right. The, the people themselves need to understand why the why of this, be involved in the process so that together we collectively can rejoice in the beauty of our space where we're gathering for that most beautiful of all acts, which is, which is worship, the worship of Almighty God. Mm-hmm. The final question that comes to mind in terms of um, what is appropriate for the Catholic liturgy is kind of related to architecture, but it's the placement of a crucifix in, uh. in a Catholic church. My understanding is that it's essential that a crucifix with the corpus, not just a cross, but an actual crucifix is central to the church and visible um, and my understanding is that it would be ideally right behind the altar. So those are aligned, although that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you see the cross off right. to the side or something like that. Is that true? It's, it's certainly our, our Catholic tradition. Occasionally you'll see, uh, the, the, the corpus as the risen Christ, you know, from oh. with the cross. But, oh, yeah. but really the, the Catholic tradition is to have the corpus of Christ who has died on the cross because of it reflects what's happening on the altar. Right. Mm. Uh, yes, Jesus, of course, is risen, seated at the right hand of the Father. Yet what is rendered present is the sacrifice of Calvary mm-hmm. on the altar. His self-gift, that self-same self-gift mm-hmm. 
that he issued in Calvary is what's rendered present on the altar precisely so that we can be drawn into it. And so to have the the cross with the corpus on it, Christ as he's died at Calvary, um, makes the connection for us symbolically and reminds us of what in fact is happening on the altar at Mass. At mass. I remember in a previous diocese where I attended Mass, there at one of the churches there, and it was a fairly central uh, church to the diocese, the, the the cross didn't have a corpus on it. It was just a cross, um, a wooden cross. And then a new bishop um, um, came to that diocese and, and required that there was an actual corpus on it. And I think the intention previously to that, to not having the corpus on the cross was for it to be more ecumenical, just to make the Catholic church more... Um, more comfortable for people of different walks of faith because the corpus isn't, well, it doesn't, it's not always a comfortable image, right? It's mm-hmm. a, it's quite literally a man um, hanging dead on a cross, right? Um, so is it, is that it is important to have the physical, a physical depiction of Christ's body on the cross, as opposed to just having a cross? Oh, sure. Everything in the church has to reflect symbolically why we're there and what's happening at mass. Yeah. Right? And that, as I keep saying, is the self-sacrifice of Christ rendered, of Christ rendered present on the altar. Um, what's also often depicted in churches are, are statues of the saints. And yeah. what that brings home is that um, the heavenly liturgy is touching earth whenever we celebrate mass. And that brings us uh, into contact with the communion of saints, which is, is clearly part of our faith. And so to have that reflected in statues around the church is perfectly appropriated. But the point is that all of the art needs to demonstrate and show a connection with the central act of worship that's happening in the here and now. Well, thank you for this discussion. You're welcome. I've learned a lot and uh, it's great to be able to speak about these things because it it really does inform. I mean, I know that the next time I walk into my parish, um, I'll have these thoughts in my mind to to better be able to worship and be attentive to the beauty of a lot of the wonderful architecture that we have here in the Archdiocese. Good. Yeah. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening to another episode. Um, We hope you can join us next week for another episode. Be sure to check out the show notes. Uh, You can subscribe to our email list. There's a link right there. Be sure to subscribe because when you subscribe, you'll get a notification every week about new content, um, updates on the Archbishop, updates about what we're going to be talking about next week. So again, go to the show notes and subscribe. And thank you for listening.